Hey everyone, this is Josh, host of the Urban Valor Podcast. Today's guest is Marine veteran Kevin Wilson. Kevin was born in Glendale, California and raised in South Pasadena, California. He grew up BMX racing and got into a little bit of trouble stealing wheelchairs. Kevin never graduated high school, so when a Marine recruiter offered him a free lunch, Kevin was set on enlisting in the military. In this episode, he shares stories about courtroom foreplay, friendly fire, and the tragic death of Marine Lance Corporal Jason Rother, who was abandoned by his unit in the desert and left for dead. If you enjoy this episode, go give us a five-star rating and leave a comment to help support our veterans. The bigger the community, the bigger the impact. If you'd like to contribute your story to Urban Valor or know anyone else who may, reach out on Instagram at Urban Valor TV, or you could email me at josh at urbanvalor.com. Enjoy the show. Hi, my name is Kevin Wilson. I'm a United States Marine Corps veteran. I joined the Marine Corps in 1986. I got out in 1990. As Lance Corporal, actually, I was the senior Lance Corporal in the, the whole division of 3-2 um, at 43 months time of grade. So I was born in Glendale, California. I was raised in South Pasadena, California. Obviously, South Pasadena is just a little bit south of Pasadena. I, it was a pretty nice neighborhood. I grew up in a nice, loving household. Uh, there was no abuse, no alcoholism, and like that. So I was kind of a privileged kid. Some might say that um, my parents were uh, latchkey parents, or I was a latchkey kid. Both my parents worked uh, all day long. And so that required my brother and I to pretty much raise ourselves. And uh, so from the age of like 11 till I got out of high school, um, my brother and I pretty much raised ourselves in a nice, loving home in South Pasadena, California. We were the typical brothers where we would race BMX, religiously, really hardcore BMX riders. Uh, we uh, were in a motocross, skating, and stuff like that. So we were, if it would, since I went to Pendleton or to uh, MCRD San Diego, you might say that I was a typical Hollywood Marine where uh, I was Southern California all the way, all the way down the line. We are, for the most part, we were good kids. We were always able to know just when to stop misbehaving so we didn't get any major trouble. We did have our run-ins run with the law. There was one time where uh, my brother and I found some wheelchairs in the back of a medical supply uh, business in Cell Pass, and we happened to take those wheelchairs home with us. Uh, and on, honestly, we thought that they were trash, but it turned out that we actually stole them, that we didn't know that we stole them. Uh, we took them home, and we'd be riding around town on the, in these wheelchairs, and we became very adept at wheeling and jumping off curbs and going downstairs in these wheelchairs until one day we were in front of Safeway in Cell Pass, and... Um, someone walked out and they thought that we were, they thought that we were really disabled and they thought that we were asking for money. So they were people, they gave my brother a dollar and we were sitting out in front of the, in front of the market, just kind of messing around. And we figured, Oh my gosh, we could get money from this. So we went back home and we put on our boy scout uniforms and we came back to the, the store. We sat out in front of the store for a couple hours and we made like 50 bucks with our boy scout uniforms on sitting in wheelchairs asking for money. They called the cops on us. <laughs> the cops came, grabbed us, took us back home and uh, knocked on the door. My mom says, yes, how can I help you? I said, well, these, we just caught your kids begging for money at Safeway. And uh, these actually, these wheelchairs are actually stolen from the medical supply center. And uh, we didn't know that. We said, we didn't steal them, mom. We found them. They were just sitting by the trash can. But they said that we stole them. So that was about the extent of my, <laughs> my criminal activity when I was growing up. <laughs> I was not inspired by anything, actually. The only thing that inspired me to join the military was I had no high school diploma 
Well, what happened was when I was in high school and I was racing BMX bikes all the time, I was racing, we were jumping, we're doing stuff like that all around town. I would inevitably ditch school to work on my bike or to go riding or go racing. So the problem was, was I essentially ditched two years of school and I never got my, um, I never got my high school diploma. So the funny part about it is, is I have the school record for South Pasadena High School for the least amount of citizenship points where to graduate from high school, that high school, you had to have 100 or 80 citizenship points. And every time you have an unexcused absence, you lose three points. And I think when I was scheduled to be out of, to get out of high school, I think I had negative 10,000 citizenship points. So I was never going to graduate from high school. I went home. Uh, I'd be, one time I was at home and the Navy called me and they said, hello, is James Wilson there? And that's my real name. Um, they said, James Wilson there. And I said, no, James Wilson doesn't live here. Uh, and they said, okay, well, let them know that the Navy called. And then the Army called me a couple of weeks later. I didn't want to talk to them either. I had no intention of, any, of ever joining them, any military service until one day I was really hungry. I was bored and I had nothing better to do. And I'm sitting at home watching MTV. The Marine Corps recruiter called me and the Marine Corps recruiter says, uh, hey, uh, how would you like to uh, join the Marine Corps? I said, I, I'm, I have no interest in joining the Marine Corps. And he said, well, what are you going to do with your life? You know, what have you done? I said, I have no idea. I didn't even graduate high school. I don't know what I'm going to do. And he goes, I'll tell you, what, why don't you come out and I'll buy you lunch. And why don't you come out and I'll talk to you? I said, oh, free lunch? I'm down. So the recruiter took, came by, picked me up, took me out to um, Denny's in South Pass, bought me, bought me a free lunch. And I signed the document. I signed the, on the dotted line two hours later to be a reserve cook in the United States Marine Corps. When I got home, I told my mom, hey, guess what? I just joined the Marine Corps. And she's like, well, what are you going to do? I said, I'm going to be a cook in the reserves. And she says, look, no, you do something decent. If you're going to join the military, if you're going to join the Marine Corps, if you're going to be a bear, be a grizzly, uh, join full time and do something. So I called my recruiter back and I said, can I change? Can I go active duty? He was ecstatic. He said, absolutely. So fill out the paperwork, join active duty and uh, became a 0311 Infantry Marine, uh, which is another story because when I took the, when I went to go take the ASVAB, there were guys that were studying for weeks or months to take the ASVAB. I showed up with no preparations. I was making I was making pictures on the ASVAB test. I wasn't even paying, I didn't even try to take the ASVAB. I just was making pictures of it. I think I, I qualified to be a motor T or a, or a grunt. The recruiter says, hey, you know what? We have this new thing called security forces. And I go, what's security forces? And he says, do you like, uh, you want to be a cop? And I go, yeah, the cops are cool, sound cool. He goes, well, this is almost like an, being an MP. And I go, ooh, an MP. Oh, yeah, that sounds good. He goes, okay, we'll get you down for security forces. So I joined for as a security force Marine. And as some of you have already been on here that I've watched you know, their videos, um, you got the same story that I did where it was really not you're really not an MP and we're just a grunt and uh, a glorified grunt going to the barracks. The recruiting process now is very detailed where you go to these pre interviews and you go to these meetings and they teach you how to, they teach you Marine Corps knowledge and you have to work out and they take you on runs and your, your recruiter stays in really good contact with you throughout the preceding time where you go to boot camp. With me, it was exactly the opposite. After I signed the documents and I was set to go, I had a six-month, approximately a six-month wait before I went to boot camp. So during this time, my recruiter never called me once. I never took one class. I never ran one block. I never did anything. I just showed up one day, and I said, uh, I'm here. 
And my recruiter goes, great, let's go, let's go to MEPS. Leading up to going to boot camp, my friends wanted to throw me a going away party. Like some, you know, some people have going away parties, you know, their families and their grandmas and grandpas and aunts and uncles come to the party. This wasn't that type of party. My friends threw this party for me. So what we did was we conned my dad into leaving for the night. I can't remember where we sent him, but it was just my brother and my friends and that type of thing. We had this big cake party. It got way out of hand. You know, I was the most popular kid in school, but for some reason on the, at this Saturday night, I was a very popular person. Like we had like 200 people in our house. It was crazy. We had a keg of beer. And I remember I was in my, I was in my bedroom trying to uh, talk to a young lady in my bedroom and my friends came rushing in. They pulled out a big, big bag. It was a ball of cocaine. Now I don't do cocaine anyways, but I surely wasn't going to do cocaine when I was going for the Marine Corps. And even this is even before they gave drug tests before the Marines. Well, what are we going to do with this? So everybody's like, well, we need something where, you know, we need something to cut up the Coke on it. And I was like, I don't have anything. And my, and my friend looked up on the, on my wall and I had a picture of Jesus, you know, the typical picture of Jesus. <laughs> and he takes the picture of Jesus off the table, off the counter and off the wall. And he puts it on my bed. And I can't believe that these people at my party, they're sitting there cutting lines of Coke on Jesus's face. I showed up at MEPS. I was the only, there was probably, I don't know, 30 people at MEPS that night that would, that was go, that were going in the military. There was probably like 20 army, 10 Navy. And, uh, there, I was the only Marine. And I thought I should have known better at that particular time that I was in for something special because I was the only Marine at MEPS that one night. So then obviously when you're everybody that goes to MCRD San Diego, everybody has to make the stop, right? So uh, we, all, we always have to stop at Denny's. We stopped at Denny's, we had lunch, and then the, we got back on the bus, and the bus driver says, okay, he read us a riot act. Okay, here we go, guys. If you have any drugs, if you have any cigarettes, if you have any chewing tobacco, if you have any contraband, if any time, you better leave it on the bus now because they're going to get your, they're gonna get it when you get down, uh, down to MCRD San Diego. We got off the bus. Uh, we got on the, you know, the infamous yellow footprints, all that stuff. No problem. That's the first week that I was there. We're still in receiving, right? Like everybody before you get your uh, drill instructors. And uh, we were all laying in bed one night. And I guess they had, we had rifles that were locked on rifle racks uh, in the, uh, in the receiving barracks. And there was a guy on firewatch that night and he was kind of screwing around. He wasn't really, wasn't really paying attention. Officer today comes walking in and uh, we're all laying there. We, we weren't quite asleep yet. And he goes, uh, hey, Marine, how many weapons do you have on uh, on deck? And uh, the the sentry, the guy that was on firewatch, he goes, I have no idea, sir. You know, I'm just standing walking around. He goes, what? So he starts PTing this guy, tells me to get on his face. We're all kind of like surprised and we're kind of like scared a little bit. And uh, after he was done PT and this guy for no, for not knowing how many weapons. I don't even know if we were, he was even told how many weapons were on deck. He was leaving and the guy, the, the, the recruit didn't even know what he was supposed to do. So we just stood there. He goes, yeah, I'm not even getting nothing. I'm not even a bye-bye, sir. So the, the guy stands up and goes and salutes him and says, bye-bye, sir. <laughs> so we were all fell out laughing. It was so funny because he was like, we all know now that you don't say bye-bye, sir, when you salute an officer, especially a officer of the day. It was kind of funny. They call me Charlie Brown. That was my nickname in, in uh, boot camp. They say, hey, Charlie Brown. And I go, they're like, hey, Charlie Brown. And I go, well, look around, where the hell is Charlie Brown at? They say, that you're Charlie Brown. I go, I am? 
And they'll say, yes. And I go, okay, so now from that point on, after like the second, third week I was at boot camp, I was known as Charlie Brown. So at the end of first phase, we all know that, you know, you, you got your, in the first phase, uh, then you go to the rifle range for second phase. At the end of first phase, uh, the, my green belt comes to me and goes, well, hey, Charlie Brown, get your shit, get on that Humvee. And I go, why? And he goes, you're not going anywhere. You're not going to the field. You're not going to second phase. You're going back to first phase. I go, what the hell's wrong? What did I do? I didn't do nothing wrong. Okay, fine. So I'm all scared. I jump off the jump out of the Humvee. I get my stuff. I go back over, go back to the quarter deck, and the senior drill instructor walks up and goes, Wilson, what the hell are you doing here? And I go, sir, this private was told that he was going back to first phase, sir. And he goes, Oh my gosh, Wilson, dude, get back, get back on the on the bus to go to the go to the rifle range. Every that was a big thing where every time I went to the next phase, they would tell me I'm going back to the other phase. I caught on the second time going out, leaving the rifle range, going back to third phase. I realized that they were just screwed with me, but I wasn't the worst guy at boot camp, but I wasn't the best either. I was kind of mid-pack, and I guess in boot camp, that's probably where you want to be. I was pretty good at running. Pretty, I was ex excellent at doing sit-ups. The pull-ups were the, my problem. I mean, the best shape I ever was in my life was in boot camp, and even that, I could only do 12 pull-ups max before I, I never was able to get that many pull-ups. Only really one time that I got in really big trouble in boot camp was, um, as we all know that that you're not supposed to fall asleep until you're given permission to go to sleep. So one night after hard day of training, we were laying at attention in our racks. And uh, I happened to, I was so tired, I happened to fall asleep before the drill instructors told us to adjust. So as I'm laying there on my back, I felt something on my nose. I'm all, I was on the top bunk, by the way. And I'm laying there and feeling something on my nose. And I opened my eyes and it was my, it was my drill instructor looking down on me, breathing on my, on me. And he had his campaign cover on and it was tapping me in the forehead. And I'm all, oh crap, I was just asleep. And he goes, holy shit, Wilson wants to go to sleep. Hey everybody, Private Wilson wants to sleep at attention. He wants, he thinks he's special. He wants to go to sleep before everybody else. Everybody out of your racks, get online. Everybody has to get out of the racks. We're, everybody's lower to lean on the rack. They're ready to go to sleep. They get out. We're all standing on a, on a line. And uh, he goes, everybody empty your drug, dump the footlocker. So everybody had to dump their footlockers. Everybody get your footlocker and get in the shower. So we had to get the footlockers. Everybody run in the shower. And we're all in our underwear. My rack mate was actually a Golden Gloves, Golden Gloves uh, boxing champion from Texas. And uh, he told me, he goes, Wilson, tonight, you're in trouble. <laughs> he goes, we're going to take care of you tonight. So I thought I was going to get blanket party. So after we got back out of the shower, he made us all lay at attention. And he said that, uh, okay, Firewatch, if you see anybody that's not at attention, then I want their name. And tomorrow they're all going to pay. And that's when it was like, uh, it was like private pile in uh, full metal jacket where they said, they said, we're going to take care. Of, we're going to take care of your ass tonight, Wilson, for the doing this. And I was, I was scared out of my mind. I mean, I'm a pretty big guy, but, you know, there's 30 dudes coming at me. I'm not going to be able to do much about it. And plus, you got to sleep with one eye open. So anyways, the, after about 15 minutes, the drill instructor came out of the duty hat and says, adjust. So uh, we all got to get back under, underneath the covers and go to sleep as, as normal. But um, uh, I got real close to being blanket party that night. When I met my wife and I, I proposed to her, I told her, this is a great day in my life, getting married to you as my wife, but it's the second best day in my life because the best day of my life was the day I got out of boot camp. <laughs>
And even when my children were born, I told them, I love you to death. You're my kids. But hey, the best day of my life was the day I got out of boot camp. The second day was getting married and so on and so forth. So after I got out of boot camp, I went home for 30 days for Christmas. I tried not to get in any trouble. So I had to report to ITS back down in Pendleton in 30 days. I showed back up and, um, at ITS. So back then it was called ITS. Now it's called SOI. And uh, I immediately met a guy named Rambo. Uh, he was another recently graduated boot camp Marine. Um, but his name was Rambo with an E-A-U on the end. But it was pronounced Rambo. So this poor kid, I can imagine how bad it was at boot camp for him. He had never seen the beach. He'd never been to Hollywood. Never like none of this other stuff. People would say, hey, Rambo, hey, Rambo. Uh, oh, you're hanging out with Rambo. You guys must be pretty tough and stuff like that. So, and he also had Marine Corps tattoos. Don't ever go into boot camp with a Marine Corps tattoo. You're going to catch a little holy hell for that one. After ITS, we were all sitting around one day and the orders came down and uh, people were getting orders for like Guantanamo Bay, Diego Garcia, uh, all these weird, exotic sounding places. And um, I got my orders. They gave, they gave me my orders. I looked at them. They're all, what the hell is Virginia, Norfolk, Virginia? What the hell is this? My gosh, I'm going to the end of the, I'm going to, they're going to send me to nowhere. I'm going to be by myself. It's going to be horrible duty. I'm not going to, I'm not going to have any fun. I was literally like crying, <laughs> sitting in the airport, ready to go get on a plane and go to Norfolk. I was like, I can't believe they're sending me to Norfolk, Virginia. It's, I'm in the middle of nowhere. Fly into Norfolk. And um, we get there in the middle of the night. Uh, I think they had a duty van. They came and grabbed us. Um, they picked us up. They took us back to the Naval Air Station in Norfolk. And uh, it's a pretty famous pretty famous barracks. It's a big cement. It looks like a church almost. It was crazy. It was really big, real like stone. And there was no real hazy or anything like that. It was like, oh, here, uh, here, there's a room. There's your room number. Go down there and drop your gear. All I remember is dropping my gear. And then they gave me a, bu a floor buffer. And they said, okay, um, here's your floor buffer. I want you to buff this whole floor, all the, all the aisles and all the common areas. So here I am, uh, you know, I've been in the Marine Corps for two months or whatever. Now I'm buffing floors and uh, Marine Corps barracks in uh, Virginia, but I didn't stay in there for very long, but it wasn't really no big thing. Just doing, they had a bar there. They had a, a bar within the barracks. I ended up going to the bar that night and I met a young lady and I got lucky. And uh, so it was kind of funny where I, you know, I was all worried about going to Norfolk for duty and it turned out to be a great place to do it. It was a great duty. I, I loved it. So while I'm in Norfolk, it was a, the best duty that I could, probably could ever have. Uh, at first, we were attached to the barracks doing guard duty, like the, the gates and that type of thing for the Naval Air Station. But they quickly moved us to a position guarding nuclear weapons that came off the carriers. When ships come into the Norfolk Air Station, they have they take those weapons off the ships. They take them and they put them on land to, to store them while they're in port. And they gave me orders to the wire, where we called it, where I had to watch these nuclear weapons when they're on the land. So it was a really good, it was a really good duty um, up until the point where I got shipped out to the wire. Uh, once you go out to the wire, uh, it's three days on, three days off, three days on, three days off. So you, when you go in, uh, you have to pack all your stuff for three days and you have to stand duty and you have to, you know, all, all, those, all the posts were fine except for post five which post five was the only roving post they had at, at the, in the, in the wire. So with that, they had to walk around the magazines uh, 24 hours a day, seven days a week and uh, not fall asleep and not get, or at least not get caught falling asleep. Cause there was probably, 
I don't know, 25 guys in a, per section. So all 25 guys had to come out. And then the new 25 guys had to go in after three days. So we all have our gear out and our weapons. And we're putting all this stuff. We have to pack all this stuff in the labs and then uh, go back to the barracks. Well, this one time, one guy got back to the barracks and his weapon was missing. And uh, they said, well, where's this guy's weapon at? And I forgot the guy's name, but he lost his weapon. We couldn't figure out if it was lost or if it got stolen. Turned out that another Marine stole this guy's weapon in while the switchover was going. And um, we got back to the barracks and after what they called NIS, and it was a big, big problem where they, could never, they never did find the weapon. Poor guy got court-martialed that lost his weapon. And um, they had NIS shut down the base. They shut down our... They shut down our barracks. They went through our personal vehicles. They went through our rooms. But, but the, to my knowledge, they never found the weapon. The wire was so big that all the, the magazines were covered with grass. When the grass grew too long, you had to have the grass cut. Well, we didn't cut grass. We guarded them. So we had, um, we had people that were hired, civilians that would come in with mowers, these giant mowers, and they'd mow the grass. I had just got up post, post five for the night, and I was tired. I was all I wanted to do was go to bed. Grass cutters come in and they said, Wilson, get your ass up. We got to go do what we got to do escorts for the grass cutters. So that meant that why to walk around with this guy. I was carrying my M203 and uh, I'd walk around following this guy in this, you know, cutting the grass where, well, when they come in, he says, uh, I had this spiel where I was supposed to ask him, do you have any guns? Do you have any knives? Do you have any flame producing articles? any contraband of any kind. And the guy, we had this bowl and the guys have to empty out their pockets and, you know, the same old bullshit every day. No, I don't got nothing. So this guy pulls out all the stuff. He puts the stuff in the thing and I'm so tired. I don't even look at the bowl. I was like, okay, all right, whatever. It's fine. Let's go. So we're in a hurry. He puts the stuff back in his pockets. He goes out, gets on his mower. I go back in, I'm sleeping. Like half an hour later, they call security alert. Everybody gets up, jumping out of bed, running outside. What's going on? Well, it turns out that this guy that I sw- that I checked in um, had a switchblade. Now, let's be honest, a switchblade could do nothing against an M203 grenade launcher, but he did have a switchblade that he said that he showed me. Um, the guy said, well, how did you get in with that switchblade? And the, and the guy goes, he, show- he let me in. And I go, me? And then he goes, yeah. And I go, I don't know what you're talking about, dude. I never saw that switchblade. They called base police on the poor guy. They got him. He got arrested. It was a big thing when they they got me they they got me away from him. They go, did you check this guy? I go, yeah, I checked him. But to this day, I don't know if he really put the knife down, or he just said that he put the knife down and got caught with it. Either way, but that was a big problem that I a big mistake that I made. When, when you're guarding nuclear weapons, a lot of people don't realize that um, these weapons have to be transported. They have to be transported from different places. Sometimes we would have to take a, a weapon from Norfolk to, to Maine, uh, to other different states, where we would have to escort the weapon in a helicopter, a CH-46, uh, given security. So we would have like, there's one CH-46 with a weapon in it, and then you'd have two CH-46s with the Marines in it following him, escorting the weapon up to where it was going. That was always kind of fun. Transporting the weapon from the ship to the wire where I worked, well, that was always great. We got to mess with the Navy when they were getting off the ship. We used to tell them, don't look at the weapon. Turn around. You know, put your hands down. Put that camera down. The interesting part about it is when, they, when the weapons were moved on land, 
you think like, well, how would they move a weapon on land? Now, I'm going to tell you a story about what they did 40 years ago. I, I hope they don't do the same thing that they did 40 years ago. Come in, there'd be a, a vehicle. That's all I'll say, a vehicle. And this vehicle was surrounded by two Suburbans that were totally blacked out and with a uh, chock full of weapons, chock full of munitions with these guys that come out to look like mercenaries. These guys had to have been tier one operators. These guys were crazy. I'm walking around watching them put the nuke in the vehicle. And I got one time I got a little too close to the uh, to the Suburban and the back doors were open up and uh, I kind of kind of walked up. I kind of looked around and the guy goes, one more step and you're going to pay for it, man. Don't you take one more step close to that vehicle. And I'm sitting there. You know, I'm a Marine. I mean, I, I, got, I got full full battle dress on. I got my H harness. I got H two. I got the uh, M203 grenade launcher vest on. I got my H, uh, M203 grenade launcher in my hand. And this guy's talking to me like I'm some civilian. I was like, dude, I, I guard the nukes for a living, man. What, what's the big deal? But apparently, they had some top secret, top drill danger stuff in those Suburbans. They called it a safe pod to follow the truck when it's on route. When I was at the wire, we had uh, different posts. Obviously, there was four or five different sets of posts, and uh, it was before I got there. There was a bunch of different different um, occurrences that happened. Where in post one was a big concrete uh, brick building, and I, sometimes we'd be sitting there. I'd look at the wall, and there was a bullet hole over here. I go, huh? And there was another bullet hole over here. And, I, you know, there was there was scuttlebutt around the barracks about what happened, but we never knew the real story about what happened on these different posts until I got out. We, we started this Facebook group page for that for the barracks. And it turns out that I found out later on that um, before I got to the wire, um, it was so stressful that um, one guy committed suicide. Um, his wife was cheating on him and he was sitting there in front of post one. He was post two and he pulled out his forty five. Boom, it blew his head off right in front of post one, which is kind of crazy. Um, the most infamous story has to be that post five, the, the roving post I was telling you about, that he was walking around one night and post three came out over a girl. They were jealous. They were arguing over a girl. And uh, a post three had live rounds. We all had live rounds because we were guarding nukes. Put up his M16, sighted in, boom, shot him. Uh, shot his fellow Marine in the back. Uh, they they thought that, it, that they thought that the place was being run over by the communists. They had a security alert. The base police they brought everybody in. They thought that he really got shot. They found out that it wasn't even it was uh, his own his own fellow marine that shot him and killed him. For some marines at this at this wire, it was pretty uh, stressful. Um, my stress was all about when am I going to get out of here? When can I get down to Virginia Beach to go party? We were only about 35, 40 miles from Virginia Beach, which Virginia Beach happens to be a very popular vacation town uh, or uh, destination for college people during spring break and that type of thing. So we were constantly down to Virginia Beach partying. Some guys in the Marine Corps specialize in becoming religious. Some people become gym rats. Uh, some people do different things. Uh, we became the party the party patrol where uh, we would go down specifically down to Virginia Beach and try to hunt down uh, young unsuspecting college girls. So that's all we went down. We'd, we'd always be down to Virginia Beach partying. The only time I really got in trouble in the Marine Corps was one night where I was um, where I was down at Virginia Beach and I happened to meet make the acquaintance of these two college girls from University of Virginia. We were partying at, at a club and they said, "Hey, uh, you." 
can you come back to our room with us? And we're, I'm like, yeah, no problem. But I got to be in formation tomorrow at seven o'clock. And they're like, oh, don't worry. We'll, we'll wake you up. We'll wake you up. I'm all, oh, okay. All right. I wasn't thinking straight. So I went down there, party with these girls for the, over, through the night. I woke up when the sun was beaming down through the motel window. And I'm all, and I look up. I'm all, oh, wow, it's, it's morning already. Holy cow, it's morning already. I realized that I was late for formation. So this is the only time I ever really gotten in really trouble. So I got up and they're like, oh, you guys, you have to take me back to Norfolk. You have to take me back to Norfolk. So the girls are like, what are you tripping out for, man? Okay, fine. So they put me in the they put me in their car. They took me back. And I went running past for formation at the in front of my building. And back then I had really long hair. Believe it or not, my hair was not always bald. It was a big thing with my unit that Willie had long hair. So I was always, it was always tight around the edges, but on top, it was really long because I'd spike it up like Morrissey. During the day, I would wrap it around the top of my head and put it underneath my cover. So no one really, none of the, none of the higher ups ever really knew about it. But I was in such a hurry running in past formation that my platoon sergeant saw it. So I got a page 11. I never got any office hours or like that. I got like, I got like, um, like a uh, restricted duty for like a week for being late to formation. And then I had to go shit my head. My, they made me shit my head. They were partying in Virginia beach was, um, next level stuff. I ended up meeting a girlfriend that was in the Navy. I could have loved this woman, but she broke my heart. She left me for a night, a Navy diver. She was a paralegal for the Navy and, uh, she wanted to have, um, relations on her boss's desk. I go, are you sure this is a good idea? And she's like, yeah, no problem. I have the key. Like she showed me the key. And I go, you're like an E3 or an E2 and you have keys to the Navy, to the Navy building on base for the, for the courtroom. And she says, yeah, I go, okay. All right. So one night we went down there, did our thing in, the, in our Lieutenant commander's desk and uh, the defense and the prosecutor's tables in the courtroom. <laughs> I'm sorry, dear. My wife's watching this. Please forgive me. This is way before your time, but it was great. We uh, we fell asleep on the we fell we fell asleep on the on the defense table. It was like four thirty, five o'clock in the morning. She wakes up and she's like, "Oh my god, they're gonna be in here. My boss is gonna be in here in like another hour." So we had to get dressed, close everything down, and uh, bolt out and, and get out of town before the uh, before the all the lawyers showed up in the. In the courtroom. My first time I've ever let that story out of the bag. <laughs> Melissa, if you're watching this, it's all your fault. <laughs> when I would go down to party in the beach all the time, I had the urge to, uh, urge to go surfing again. So uh, I, when I was in Virginia Beach one day, I went to the local surf shop. That's still, uh, still there to this day, 17th Street Surf Shop in, in uh, Virginia Beach. And I bought myself a surfboard. And so I brought the surfboard back in my, in my car I used to have an old broken down VW rabbit. I brought the surfboard back and I put my surfboard in my room. And uh, it was always kind of funny where people would come in and say, Hey, Willie, where's your surf? Are you going surfing today or whatever? So I would go down and, and go surfing. Eventually, I got orders to the fleet. Every barracks baby's worst nightmare is going to the fleet. And it, it happened to me uh, once I got my orders to the fleet, I had to go to 3rd Battalion, 2nd Marine Division. Now, at the time, I didn't know it was 3 2. All I knew was I was going to Lejeune. So I went back home on leave and I was partying, living it up as I normally do at home. I'm watching the news one night and my mom says, hey, check this out. Look, look at the story that's on the news. And now this is where my stories are a little bit more serious. Uh, I was looking, watching the news. I go, what the hell? And the news said, um, 
Marine Corps loses Marine in 29 Palms. And I was like, huh. So I watched, I, I watched it a little bit, but I was too, or I was too preoccupied with what I was doing. And, uh, I said, well, that sucks. I didn't think nothing of it further. Uh, at the end of my leave, I get my stuff together and get my surfboard, go to back to Lejeune. And I check when I'm checking in Lejeune, I show up with my surfboard underneath my arm, my sea bag on my, on my shoulder. So it turns out that when I got to three, two, uh, three, two was, was not that Lejeune at the time. Three, two was actually still in 29 Palms, California training for a CAX. I quickly found out that during that time, something very important happened, a very notorious happened to three, two kilo when they were in 29 Palms training. Um, it, word got back, uh, when I was in the rear after I checked in that, um, they had lost a Marine on one of their training operations, uh, before they came back from, from 29 Palms. And I was like, wait, I kind of put two and two together. I go, is this the Marine that they were talking about on the news before I came to, before I reported to, to uh, duty? It turns out that they left Jason Rother out in the middle of the desert in 29 Palms on my birthday on August 30th, 1988. The whole situation is really messed up because it could have been avoided. Uh, at the time when it happened, the word on the street was that he went UA and that he they put him out there by himself on a road guard. He had his girlfriend or some girl or someone came by and picked him up and they went UA, never to be seen again. If you know anything about 29 Palms, which I didn't know Rother, I never met him. I would never, I've never been to CAX. Remember, I'm at, I'm in North Carolina at the time this is happening. But found out after that was, was that he was 17 miles away from the nearest road. If you're gonna go UA, you're not gonna go UA in the middle of the desert, 17 miles away from the nearest road. He made it 16 and a half before he passed out and died. He was less than half a mile away from the road when they found him. The Lieutenant Lawson, some lieutenant I never met, was told to put post road guards in the middle of the desert because Amtrak's and there's a big column coming through the desert. And he had him stand out there with a the, the chem light to point which way for the tracks to go. And then after the last track came through, he was going to get on the last track and then come back to the rear. Well, what happened was he was supposed to be posted out there with another Marine and he wasn't the guys on the truck. I've, I've read Lieutenant Lawson's, I've read his court-martial papers. He was told by the people that his junior Marines in the truck saying, Hey, uh, sir, aren't we supposed to have two people out on these, on these OPs? And Lieutenant Lawson overrode them and said, no, we're going to have one person out on these OPs. When I've been out on OPs, uh, I think that'd be relieved in a couple hours. If I get two quarts of water, if I get an MRE, I'm eating it like the first hour I'm out there and I'm not worrying about it. They left Rother out there by himself. He had two quarts of water and two MREs. He drank his water and the eight or MREs. No one comes by. He thinks, okay, what am I going to do now? I'm going to go to sleep. So he goes to sleep. He wakes up the next morning. No one's there. Everybody's pulled out. And he thinks, hmm, there's a train track that way. I think I'm going to go that way. So he makes a arrow with rocks and says, I'm going this way. Sets off. 17 miles later, nothing happens. Meanwhile, back at the base, at the barracks, the armorer 
says, hey, um, we're missing a rifle. And the platoon sergeant and the squad leader are like, well, whose rifle is it? And he goes, it's Rother. And where the hell's Rother at? They thought that he went UA and they covered for him. Now, this isn't reported in the news. This isn't reported on in the court-martial documents, but this is what I was told firsthand when I was there, when they came back, because they said that the platoon sergeant, the squad leader, thought that he went UA. Everybody thought that he went UA. They covered for him, and they said, oh, he's not here, actually. He went UA. And they said, well, this was two days later, by the way. He was already dead. They said, okay, well... We had to go find Rother. So they went battalion online. They get out there trying to find him. The, the battalion commander walks in the middle of the desert. There's, a, there's an arrow right there. He went that way. And you know what the battalion commander goes? The battalion commander goes, you know what? We're going to go that way. He's messing with us. He's trying to throw us off his scent. So we're going to go the opposite direction. And they went the opposite direction. They had battalion online, helicopters, night vision goggles. Couldn't find him. And 3-2 Kilo gave up on this guy. They came back. I'm at the barracks when they come back. And Lieutenant Commander's gone. Platoon Sergeant's gone. Squad has gone. Everybody's gone. The story is they went UA. When they do all the reports on the, on the situation, on the Wikipedia page, on all these different news outlets, they say, well, they thought that he went UA, but they weren't really sure. They thought that this, no, they thought that he went UA. That was the, the word on the street was he went UA. Before they came back from CACs, they had already relieved the platoon commander, the platoon sergeant, all stuff. They were gone. I never met them. But it was a really bad situation where I was always felt bad for it because they said they never would try to find the guy. They gave up on him. They came back. They came back and they thought he was missing. He would, they couldn't, they never did find him. Four months later, San Bernardino Search and Rescue, they go, you know what? We heard about a Marine that got lost out here. Maybe we should try to find him. Maybe that would be a good training situation. So got their stuff together, and they went out to the desert, and they found him in an hour. And they found him half a mile from the nearest road and the nearest train tracks. That was well used, that they would have found him, no problem. Everybody got fried for that. It was a bad situation. It was swept on the rug, as far as I'm concerned, with 3-2 kilo. It was a situation that's only gotten worse over the years because if you go to 29 Palms now, it's a 100% chance you've heard the story before. If if you go to boot camp now, there's an 80, 90% chance you've heard the story before. I mean, it is infamous in the Marine Corps, but the problem is, is no one knows his name. No one knows when it happened. No one knows the situation that led up to him this happening. And I'm here to explain what actually happened, where his name is Rother. The Marine Corps screwed him. The Marine Corps fucked him over. They left him out in the middle of the desert for, for uh, four months. And they never really addressed it to the troops that, like myself that was, in, that was in the company. Whenever I meet someone or I talk to another Marine in passing or whatever the case may be, and uh, I'll, I have this weird fascination with the story. I'll say, hey, have you ever heard about the Rother thing? And they said, no, what's, what's the Rother thing? I go, yeah, we left the, the 3-2 left the guy out of 29 Palms. Oh, yeah, I've heard of that. But they never knew his name. Uh, they never knew the year. So I always have to say, you know, yeah, it was Rother. I was, it, was, it was my company. And I, I showed up there right after it happened. 3-2 Kilo was always a weird unit because stuff was just never really right. Like it was something was always kind of off. Our company gunny was unsat. He couldn't run around the block or... Our company commander was unsaid. He had big bellies, and there were just it, it was a it was just a crazy situation where three two kilo will go down in infamy. 
um, with the Marine Corps for leaving a guy out of CACs in 1988, August 30th. After this whole thing happens with Rother, I'm uh, I'm just doing my own thing. They they come back in and I get my I get my room. I meet my new roommates. Uh, one has narcolepsy. Uh, one's a gym rat. Um, we're all alcoholics, uh, drinking every night long. Now, but, but, but I always knew just how far to take it before I got in any real trouble. So I, I screwed as much as I could the, the rules. But I showed up there and they they walk in and I have my serve. I have my I, have, I had a seven seven six thruster uh, surfboard and a surfboard bag and it's leaning up against my bed. And I had this. I went to the mall and I bought this cult picture, a cult poster. It was like I don't know six by six. And the only wall that was that was big enough for me to put the poster on was behind the racks when they went up against the wall. So I hadn't even met my new roommates yet, and uh, I had this big Colt poster in there with Ian Asbury on it, and I got my surfboard, and I'm listening to Echo and the Bunny Men, and my buddies walk in, and I got, you know, this is back when we could drink in the barracks. You can't do that no more, I don't think. And I had my Miller light open, and what had my feet up, and they walk in, and they go, who the hell are you, man? I'm all, hey, I'm Wilson and Willie. Oh, that was my nickname, Willie. Wild, wild Willie was my nickname. And uh, I showed up at the, I showed up there and uh, they said, you know what? You seem to be a smart ass. Come with us. So they walked me down to the armory and they said, you're a pretty big guy. You think, you know what? I got something special for you. And they handed me the saw. I go, what the hell am I going to do with this thing, man? They go, oh, you, by the way, we have a weapons run at 0700 tomorrow. Now I came from the barracks. I was called a barracks baby. So I said, okay, fuck you guys. You guys want to run? Let's run. So next morning I wake up, show up there, and um, go, out on a, go out on a weapons run. Uh, they purposely try to outrun me on it. These other guys are just carrying their M16s. I got the, I got the saw. I made it. I didn't pass out. I didn't, I didn't drop on the run. But ever, ever, ever since that point on, my nickname became Willie, you know, all, these different, all these different variations of Willie, uh, California, uh, uh, you know, Hollywood Marine, you know, I'd have my, I'd have my surfboard and during field day, the company commander come in and go, what the hell is that? And I go, that's my surfboard, sir. And, uh, cause back then we, you could actually drive your vehicles on base. There was a shoreline uh, and I, I could surf on base actually. That was, was kind of cool. Back when I was in Lejeune, I had the rep- reputation of, uh, partying a lot and, uh, surfing and listening to new way music and driving a, uh, a Volkswagen Rabbit convertible, as my wife would say, the total bitch car. One day we got orders to go to Okinawa, uh, Thailand, and um, Korea. We flew to Okinawa. Now that was, if you've ever been to Okinawa, it's kind of a, I call it the armpit of the world, basically. It was horrible when I was there. Uh, we, we got off the plane and we came out of the airport and there's on the side of the building, it says, uh, attention U.S. servicemen, please all go home. Like then, like a fuck you or something like that. I was like, whoa, whoa! They want what are we doing here? They don't even want us here. They have, they've written on this big, on this huge on the side of this wall. Go home. We hate you. I go down to uh, Okinawa. It's horrible. I'm at Camp Schwab, trying to uh, trying to get through the day. While we're at Schwab, while we're in, in uh, Okinawa, we have to we we find out we have to go to Thailand. So everybody's like, oh, we're going to Thailand. It's gonna be great. Girls, girls, girls. I was like, wow, okay, this sounds pretty cool, right? So we get on this boat, we get on LST, floating it to uh, Thailand. If you've never been to Thailand, it's there's like 50 women for every U.S. serviceman. I mean, I, I liked meeting women, 
But this was even too much for me because you walk down the street in Thailand and be my boyfriend, be my girl, be my boyfriend, be my boyfriend. I was like, my gosh, please just leave me alone. All I want to do is go down and get a beer and have some fun. But it just constantly barraging you with, with women. It's like, it's, oh my gosh, it was crazy. So uh, that was one part of Thailand that I didn't like. What they did was we had to do a, I don't know if it's called a mew or a whatever the heck, whatever it was, but the Marines and the army had some special thing going where there was like 2000 troops. They had Amtraks, they had seven tons, they had artillery, they had all kinds of stuff where these like mile, like a two mile long column. What the, we did was we became like the reactionary force where we were like guerrilla fighting to them. So we lived in the jungle with the Thai Marines. I didn't take a shower for a month. Uh, no shower. I had the same clothes on. We, we had resupply points. We had to get to little checkpoints where we would get MREs, we get water and stuff like that. But other than that, we were on our own. Our whole thing was we were to attack the column and just give the column a hard time. So we would, we would go out, we'd hire the, the local Thai people, we'd get in the back of their pickup trucks, we'd hide in the back and then we'd drive in through the column and we'd get up and bah, 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 bah. You know, we weren't fooling anybody. They could have blown us out of the water if they wanted to, or blown us out of the trucks if they wanted to. But a month in the in the bush without a, with, with a shower was always kind of challenging. Uh, the funny part about it is, is after we finished the unit, after we finished the operation, we we went to a Thai village and they had a big, this kind of like this house where it was kind of elevated off the ground. And we made, we made a camp in front of their house. And after we were there for about two hours, the Papasan came out and goes, hey, could you guys move farther to over there? Because you guys smell too bad. You guys are making my kids sick. And we were like, yeah, no problem. I mean, that's how bad it was. When you've been in the field that long, you have white rings around your, you know, underarms and white rings around your crotch from sweat. And it was, it was, uh, it was, it was bad. It was the worst I've ever, <laughs> it was the worst I've ever smelled in my life. After we did that unit, that deployment, then we are lucky to have one week off with no formations in, in Patia Beach, uh, Thailand. And I don't know if you've ever, if you've ever been to Patia, uh, one week with no, with no formations, no accountability, no nothing, just turn you to Liberty. I'll see you in a week. So we just ran Patio Beach down for a week and it was great stuff, but that was always, that was a, a lot. It was a very challenging to be out in the, in the jungle for a month. But if we take care of business in Thailand, we get them back on the ship. We sail back to, uh, Okinawa. And um, we, after we do Okinawa, we got to go to Korea. So we, after we go to we go to Korea, there's not much to tell about Korea except it sucks. Uh, it's cold. There's no place to party. There's no women. If you want to get laid, you got to go to a uh, got to go to a brothel. Korea sucks. After I got back to Korea, then we got sent back to Okinawa, and we were scheduled to go home about three weeks. We were going. We we're floating back home. And the company commander has a meeting with all of us and says, here's what's going on. We're going to do a live fire exercise tomorrow because there's ammunition that we have that we don't, that the Marine Corps does not want to pay to be shipped back till the June. And I was like, I thought to myself, I was like, what well, doesn't make any sense. I'm going to just leave it here for the next guys to use. The next day we showed up for the live fire exercise. I was in Kilo Company and the gentleman that ends up being killed was in India, I believe. He went after me. There was hard targets on a hilltop and they were all kind of spread out. And we were up here and they had a battery of 60s over here. So what happened is we would 
traverse down this mountain to the bottom of the hill. And while we're traversing, the 60s would provide suppressing fire onto the target. And when you got to the bottom of the hill, uh, the or platoon would pop red flare, go up. The 60s would stop shooting. And we would get up and march up the mountain, shooting the targets, killing the bad guys. That was the plan. Uh, when I went through, you go down, no problem. We pop the red flare, boom, boom. No, We go walk, we stand up, shooting, shooting, no problem. It's all done. Well, what I heard was when any company went through after me, um, probably I was probably at the back of the at the barracks, maybe an hour, and word came through that there was a accidental shooting. There was a gentleman that I was in barracks duty with. His name was uh, Michael Newsom, dark green marine, stand up guy. He was uh, he was scheduled to be out. He was getting EAS probably a week after we got back. So he was probably getting out in like three months. He's already had a girlfriend. He had a, he had a child that was, his girlfriend was pregnant. He was, he came after me. And apparently the story goes that uh, he went up to the bottom of the hill, like everybody else, they popped the red flare. He gets up and he, they think that he slipped. Everything's that he slipped, but when he got up, he actually got shot and he got shot in the back. He fell down the hill. And the story goes from people that were there, and they said, Newsom, get up. We got, we're going. We got to go. And Newsom wasn't moving. Uh, so my best friend was the corpsman. And my best friend told me that he went down there and uh, he saw that Newsom had been actually been shot through the back. They took him to BAS. And um, my friend told me that he had stories about how they opened him up, where they tried to save his life, where they cut him and they broke his ribs. And they said, Doc Shirley, come here. And this is a guy that you've been partying with and you've known for you know a long time. I, I mean, I was stationed with this guy for years at, in barracks duty. We weren't best friends, but we knew, definitely knew each other. We're friendly. Uh, they said, Doc Shirley, come here. They gave Doc Shirley, put his hand and put his hand in the guy's chest. And Doc Shirley was trying to squeeze the guy's heart so he wouldn't die, trying to keep him alive. Um, it didn't work. And the messed up part about it is, is there's only four 60s on this hill. You think that the Marine Corps want to know who shot him. How it sh how he got shot, why he got shot, nothing. They never did a ballistic check on the weapons. They never did a ballistic checks on the on the on the that I know of, that any of us know of. They never did any ballistic checks on his body, on the bullet. They never tried to recover any brass. They never tried to find out who, which one. Can you imagine being one of the four sixty gunners up here that not knowing? Hey, was it me that killed him or was it you? Right. There was never any information that was ever disseminated back to the unit. It was always it was just a big whitewash. Uh, there was one small little meeting that we had after it happened um, that, um, you know, that the, the, the company commander felt bad about what happened. But after that, nothing. It's ended up being like lore, just like the Rother thing happened. Um, the new something happened in, the, in, in, in Okinawa for 3-2. And once again, once again, 3-2 strikes again. Uh, I think that... Um, General Gray was the commandant at the time. And I think he was quoted saying that he wouldn't send 3-2 to the seven-day store to get a loaf of bread. It just seemed that no one cared. I was a short-timer. Uh, I was due to get out in August of 90. By this time, I'm a, I'm a senior lance corporal in the division. And uh, they said, hey, uh, Wilson, we're get, we just something just happened. Saddam Hussein went into, went into Kuwait. And I'm all, well, who's Saddam Hussein and where's Kuwait? The unit's going to be going to the Persian Gulf 
we know you're getting out in a month and a half. Do you want to extend and go back to the to go to the Middle East? And I was I was a short one out of my group, and I said, uh, "No, I don't want to go. I don't want to extend. I want to get out." I only have two regrets about my time in the Marine Corps. Um, one my one regret was not cutting my hair in time to get caught, and the second regret was not re-upping and going to the Gulf with my buddies. I said, no, I don't want to go to the Marine Corps. Oh, I don't want to go to the Gulf. I'm going to get out. And I pushed out, and I have to live with that up until this day, that my friends went to the Marine Corps, went to the Gulf, and I didn't go. So my friends got, came back. They get ramping up to go to the Gulf. I'm in rear party. I'm working in the chow hall. I'm working in the armory. I'm working in supply, getting the company ready to go. And my friends leave, and uh, I stay behind, and I eventually get out. It was horrible because, you know, as they, as people talk about now where there's no training, they don't prepare you to get out of the Marine Corps. Uh, I was, I was one of the worst ones where I drank and I spent my money on clothes and booze for four years. I had absolutely no preparation to get out of the Marine Corps. I had no plan. I had no money. I had nowhere to go pack up my stuff. And I'm I go to the airport, Norfolk international airport. And I have two sea bags. I have my surfboard bag. One sea bag is filled with like my Ralph Lauren pants, my Lacoste shirts, you know, all these expensive clothing, all these expensive stuff that I have. Then I got my sea bag with my alphas, my my camis, my boots, t-shirts, all the all my uniform stuff. And I go to the airport and I said, "Hey, I'm here to check out." And they said, "Great." Well, the problem is, is you can only check two of those bags. I had three bags. You only check two bags. I said, well, why, you could pay extra to get the third bag out, but I don't have any money. So I was like, okay, well, uh, what do I do? If you, don't want, if you don't want to take one of the bags, we'll take care of it for you. I said, okay, great. So I gave him my whole bag full of uniforms, except for my blues. I pulled my blues out, and I, they threw them away. Man. I threw away all my uniforms at the airport. They, they threw away a whole sea bag, every cam, camis, green T-shirts, boots, covers, Everything gone. I was such a bird of a Marine that I threw away. I was getting out and I had alphas, short sleeve and long sleeve shirts and a pair of alphas that have no chevrons on it from when I got out of boot camp. I never even put PFC or Lance Corporal on them. Um, they all got thrown in the trash. I'm sitting at the airport and my buddy has a marker and he's Mark. He's drawing pictures all over his sea bags and stuff like that. And uh, I'm waiting, we're waiting for the flight to come. And I go, hey, what's, look at that damn thing. So I wrote on my sea bag, I put, eat the apple, fuck the core. And I drew a picture of an apple core on my sea bag. Thinking that no one's ever going to see this, right? I think I'm going home, who cares? I go home, I'm sleeping on my mother's couch, my, my friend's couch. I'm, I have no money. It's horrible. I'm a security guard. I'm making minimum wage. Uh, I quit that job, and then I get a job at Thrifty's Dipping Ice Cream in Pasadena and Hastings Ranch, for the, for those that know where Pasadena is. One day, I'm up there. I've been, I've been out for probably a, two months, a month, and uh, I'm dipping ice cream, and Urkel comes in. And I look up. I said, hey, you're the guy that played Urkel. And it turns out that he lives in the area, and he goes, yeah, let me get a double, double, double chocolate Martin Crunch with some rainbow sherbet. And it was that point I'm all... And this is my has <laughs> come down to dipping ice cream for Urkel at Thrifties. I said, this is horrible. I went back home. And like a day later, 
There's a knock on the door. Dun, 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 dun. I said, hmm. Open the door. Are you James Wilson? He said, well, depends. I owe you money? He says, no, I have a letter for you. So I opened up the letter and it says, uh, on behalf of the United States government, you are now required to report for active duty to the Persian Gulf. And there's a and there's another envelope in there. I open up the other envelope and there's a check. A check for a thousand dollars. And I was like, I'm down, let's go. Cause I, I'm eating I'm eating top ramen three meals a day. I have no money. And now I've got a thousand dollar check and now I'm going back in the Marine Corps. I had like twenty four hours to pack myself up. So remember I threw all my I threw all my uniforms away already. So all I had was this one seat bag with like I think I had like a, maybe a t-shirt and some socks and that was it. So I showed up with an empty seat bag that has eat the apple, fuck the core on it with no uniforms. So the, the staff sergeant goes, what's that on your seat bag, Marine? I said, oh, uh, eat the apple, fuck the core, staff sergeant. And he goes, where are all your uniforms at? Oh, um, they were lost by the airline. And he goes, you know that by law, you're supposed to keep these uniforms for like while you're in, on the IRR. And I go, what's the IRR? In active right reserve, man, you're supposed to have these things. I go, sir, I, I go, staff sergeant, I'm sorry. So he goes, I got a job for you. So before I was even, before I even took the oath again, they had me cleaning the head because I had eat the apple, fuck the core on my seat bag. And while we're at Pendleton, all my buddies started showing up that got out before me. Like, hey, Viscomi, hey, John, you know, these different people were all having a big reunion because we're all, we all got recalled for the same war. And uh, we're, we're all standing around smoking and joking. And there's old guys there. I mean, these guys are older than my father at the time. I, and we're talking to them and I go, uh, they go, they're all complaining that they got recalled. And I'm all, this is great, man. I got a check for a thousand bucks, man. And these guys are all, this one guy's like, dude, I'm losing 10 grand a week being down here, man. I go, how are you losing 10 grand a week? Because I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a corporate lawyer and I'm supposed to be in court right now. And we're, there were guys there from Vietnam. They got recalled. This apparently this is the first time that people got recalled uh, since Vietnam. So uh, like, yeah, dude, I, I was in Vietnam, dude. They recalled me, and this was in what 90, 90, late ninety. We're down there for a couple months. Signed all my paperwork, my will, my power of attorney. I never even got a haircut. I didn't even have a chance to get a haircut. The war ended. That's it, man. War is over. Shock it off. Walk out. My girlfriend picks me up on the, uh, a Las Pulgas, and I'm out. I'm Audi Five. I'm going home, and boom, I'm done. It, it's not easy getting out as a Lance Corporal, man. It takes a lot of work, a lot of a lot of perseverance, a lot of dedication to only get out as an E3 with the 43 months time and grade uh, as a Lance Corporal. Uh, to be honest with you, people have asked me that question before. The best explanation I could do is uh, tell people is. Uh, I drank a lot. I partied a lot. I didn't care. I had long hair. I was never, my uniform was really never squared away. I never did any boards. Um, people ask me what my cutting score was. I, I asked him, well, what's a cutting score? No one ever said, hey, Wilson, hey, you want to do an MCI? I said, what's an MCI? I never, none of this stuff. I never did any of it. There were guys that came in that were contract corporals that got promoted. There were my, my own buddies that I came to the fleet with. Everybody gets promoted. But for some reason, I just had an aura about me that Kevin, you know, Wilson doesn't care about getting promoted and let's not worry about him. And to be honest with you, I really didn't care. I mean, I was having too much fun. Back in those days, when you, came, when you became a corporal, it was just more work, right? 
more responsibility. I mean, I, I didn't want that. Now, if I went to the fleet, you know, maybe I would have become a corporal. But at the time, I was a real underachiever. Uh, I was an underachiever in high school. I was an underachiever in the Marine Corps. I was an underachiever in my careers after that. And I always catch up later on and I overcompensate once I pass that and I try to make up for it. So do I regret becoming a Lance Corporal for, or staying a Lance Corporal for, for 43 months? Absolutely. But at the time, it was just more responsibility. I mean, if something happened, if I went to the Gulf, and I don't want to end up being in a position where I lose a Rother or I make a decision to have one of my kid, one of my buddies shot or lost, whatever the case may be. It was just more responsible than I really needed, and I really didn't have any interest in staying in. But now, do I regret it? Absolutely. Uh, I should have been. I should have been the sergeant major of the Marine Corps, even though I was Lance Corporal of the Marine Corps. And I, I challenge anybody to find a Lance Corporal that never had office hours, never got busted, to have more than forty-three months time in grade. It'd be rough. I drive a truck, Ben, and um, I had a I had an office job. I had a white collar job for many years. I was insurance. I was an insurance manager for a claims department for an insurance company. Uh, but after I got fired from uh, my insurance company <coughs> job, I uh, issued too much. I issued too large of a payment to a sell for a settlement, and I got nailed and I got fired. Overpaid a uh, settlement by like fifty grand, and I got fired for it. I opened up a bike shop. Ran a bike shop for a while, but now I drive a truck. I have two responsibilities. I go to sleep and I drive. That's all I do. And I make more money now than I ever made when I was a white collar professional with staff dealing with HR, dealing with numbers and legal ease and that type of thing. I drive a truck and I found boxing a couple months, a couple years ago. My uh, my Instagram handle is the BMX Hunter. And what I normally do is I, I tell stories about BMX back in the day, about me racing, about people, other my friends racing. I interview people um, such as similar to this. We talk about BMX stories, famous BMX-related stuff from the 80s. If you're a BMX guy from the 80s and you want to talk BMX, you, you're interested in the whole sport or the parts or the culture of the 80s in BMX, uh, you might want to give me a shot. Check it out, The BMX Hunter on Instagram. The BMX Birds Podcast on YouTube. I love it, but no one watches my videos. So if you don't want to watch it, I don't blame me because no one else wants to watch it either. But it is entertaining. I think they're really good stories. I just don't get a lot of views on it. But uh, yeah, I box now and I have two kids that are pay that are paying the ass that no longer live with me. I love boxing. I love hitting the bag and uh, I love uh, sparring. So I'm always looking for sparring partners. Heavyweight sparring partners, 200, 200 plus. Let's spar. If I've come off like I'm not proud to be a Marine, or um, I wasn't happy in the Marine Corps. I wasn't happy in the Marine Corps. <laughs> but I am proud to be a Marine, as like so many other people that were probably, I was just a normal Marine, right? I wasn't a special forces. I never caught rounds. I never shot anybody. I never had any, I never had any of that stuff. I was just a normal peacetime Marine that did my time. And a lot of Marines are in the same position I am. And when you're in, you know, it's like I got 433 to wake up, 432 to wake up, 401. You know, I was just doing my time trying to get out, trying to stay a Lance Corporal, trying desperately not to get promoted. But after you get out, and I and I look back on my life in the Marine Corps and my experience that I had back then, and the, during the reunions that we have with my buddies from The Wire, where we go out and we party in Vegas and we're having these good times and we're talking about the stuff, 
it couldn't, I couldn't be more proud to be a Marine than to serve my country. I thank my mom for talking me into just, if you're going to be a bear, be a grizzly, just do it. Take that, that you don't have to be a combat guy. At least I don't think so. I never saw a combat, but you don't have to be a combat guy to be proud of being a Marine or being in the service. If you're going to do it, do it right and uh, try and uh, put effort into it. And you'd be surprised what you could probably get out of it much more than I did. That's for sure. If you're going to be a bear, be a grizzly. Peace out.